Hey, I'm Kathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust. We are a family of 25 schools across the UK. We were founded by women, four girls, 150 years ago. And to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Race Her Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights, creating the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everyone else. We welcome the stories and advice that help us as parents, carers, educators, and friends to instill the confidence and drive in girls to become the change makers that the world really needs. My guest on this episode is Sunday Times bestselling author, presenter, fashionista, and all-round role model, Candice Brathwaite. I want my kids to do the silly stuff because we all did silly stuff. We don't need to name it. But my thing is I want them to feel secure in telling me that silly stuff. So much drama and pain comes from secrecy. Her first book, I'm Not Your Baby Mother, addressed the issues she found when she became a mother herself, that the media landscape was absolutely not representative of her own experience as a woman of colour. Her follow-up, Sister Sister, was a series of essays setting out for a younger generation what she would have liked to have known herself. She's back with her first work of fiction, a young adult book, Cuts Both Ways, and she's here with us today. This is Raise Her Up, and this is Candice Brathwaite. I thought what's going through her, that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise Her Up. Candice Brathwaite, we are absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming on to Raise Her Up. Thank you. You're an influencer, you're a presenter, you're a columnist, you've got two kids, you've got two bestsellers, and probably now you've got a third bestseller on the way. How do you do it? I think for women of any race, there is this expectation to know everything, do everything, be present all the time. It's not, I'm not even in the school WhatsApp chat. Wow. Yeah. I don't know when the holidays are. I don't know when she's lost uniform. (laughs) And my husband is the only man in the school WhatsApp chat. And so I think him taking on roles that are incorrectly viewed as feminine or the mothering role helps me do all the other stuff. That is brilliant to hear. And I can just, I think I can hear the roar of thousands of women saluting you for refusing to be part of that WhatsApp (laughs) group chat because there are days when it just pings and pings and pings and pings. Um, Candice, we are always wanting to um, get our young women in our schools to see that there are so many opportunities in the world. Talk us through how you got to the point you're at now. It'd be really interesting to hear about your career path because it's quite diverse, isn't it? Yeah, it's very diverse. I think we'll start at the fact that I won a competition for a role at a publishing house. So my daughter was maybe one and a half. I was desperate to go back to work and I'd always wanted to be a writer and or work in publishing. This was in 2013, 2014. It was like you went to these unis or you had nepotism on your side. I didn't have either of those. And so I came across a competition, this publishing house we're running, um, that were basically uh, saying they had one or four jobs in marketing departments. And you had to enter the competition and basically fight your way to the top. 
I ended up winning one of those jobs. And I spent just under a year in the marketing department of that space. This is when blogging was big. I know we don't call it blogging anymore, but blogs were huge. And I was like, how much would you charge to promote this title? Now, when they told me what they were charging, I was like, girl, you're in the wrong job. Now, how do we, how do we cross that bridge? (laughs) And I started to make notes. I started to understand that you need quite a large online audience to then convert that audience into somewhere a brand would put ad spend. Like I saw where this horizon was going. And before the end of my contract, I quit my job. Oh, how brave. So brave. Also, though, so stupid. So, so (laughs) stupid. My advice now to young people is try and do the two things in tandem. Luckily for me, my partner at the time was working full time, but me quitting that job brought us right back to a place of incredible financial hardship where he was looking at me correctly. So like I was crazy. He was like, you're following a pipe dream. This is ridiculous. This job was paying really well. You could work your way up the ladder. And I kept saying to him, but I I can see where the market's going. I can see the trend here. Like advertisers are no longer giving money to TV and magazines. They're giving them to people with an audience. I think I could do that. Long story short, it took me four years to land a paid job. Um, But what I learned in that time was it gave me time to really finesse my writing skills because the, the end goal was to go back into that office as an author. That was always the end goal. It took some time, but uh, I'm Not Your Baby Mother came out in 2020. Yes. And up to now, you've written this nonfiction, haven't you, which has really stemmed from your own lived experience, but has also engaged lots of people from many different backgrounds. And I would include myself in that. And that the line from um, Sister Sister, you're a supporting act rather than a headliner. Sometimes you have to sit something out. Sometimes allyship is about engaging with material where you're an afterthought. I find that incredibly powerful and empowering as well. But now you are going into young adult fiction, aren't you? Tell us about Cuts Both Ways. Why why fiction and why a love story? Why fiction? Um, I'm tired of minding my own life. I'm exhausted by nonfiction. <laughs> I bet. Because you don't hold back. I don't. And it's got to the point where... Anything I have been paid in advances for my book goes straight back to my therapist. Like, I am exhausted. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I actually want to draw the line here for a bit. I'm tired of talking about my life, especially the earlier years. They are deeply, deeply traumatic. And also, a lot of people who are not authors don't understand the legality around nonfiction. There is so much I want to say in my nonfiction books that, you know, it comes back from legal and they're like, would you like to be sued five times this year? You absolutely can't say that. And so fiction for me was always going to be the next step because it allows me to relax a little. It allows me to explore themes in my life or those close to me without there being the fear or the threat of or a feeling like I need to leave certain things off the page. So it was always going to be the next step. Right. Okay. Cuts both ways. I had just submitted sister, sister, I think finally. And my husband was like, what's next? What's next? I'm like, dude, give me a break, man. Like I literally hit send on that today. You saw how much that killed me. We were having some wine in the kitchen and we just started to talk about this story. 
and we were batting ideas back and forth. And he was like, no, I think it should go like this. I give my husband a lot of props for the way that story came together. And interestingly enough, the idea for Cuts Both Ways was information before I was even approached to write YA. So it's very, very interesting, very manifestation. Everyone knows that's right up my street. Yes. Just <laughs> just talk to us for a moment about that manifestation. Yeah. So guys, I'm a massive fan of what I call the woo-woo, just like energy and the idea that ideas and thoughts are very powerful in creation. And more often than not, really believing something is half of the job. That's our vibe in this household. And so what I think happened, and this is where manifestation is its strongest, is we had that discussion with no pressure or intent of it being a real thing. It was just fun. The energy around that discussion was, oh my God, you could do this. And what if we kill this person? And, you know, just fun. And then like three months later, there's a knock on the inbox like, oh, have you ever thought of writing dot, dot, dot? And I looked at my husband and I was like, ha, ha, ha. And that for me is when manifestation is at its purest because there is no pressure behind your idea. It was just this fleeting moment of us being in really joyful creativity, which then came to pass. And yeah, that's how we got to here. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, I've, I received the proof um, a few days ago and I haven't got to the end yet, but I am really, really, really enjoying it. But I'm reading it with a sense of I can't say I can't say I feel relaxed reading it because I know that there is something around the corner that is going to basically make me cry. Mm. <laughs> We're going to need our, our a box of tissues next to it. Don't give us any spoilers, but but it, can you give us an <laughs> overview? So the overview of the plot of Cuts Both Ways is we have Cynthia who has been moved from her South London inner city school to a private school in the quote unquote countryside. And she's been moved because her older brother was unfortunately stabbed to death. And for safety, her parents have moved and she settled in at this new private school. She gets the attention of two brothers, two brothers who are very different. So we have Thomas who is white Thomas Goddard who is from a very posh well-to-do family and his adopted brother Isaac they're both in her school and they both fall for her and so there is that oldest time friction of like a love triangle it was really important for me that it was a love story because one of the biggest themes in Cuts Both Ways is knife crime so I wanted there to be a balance the reality is and you know you just said it as a reader is you don't get to relax. And that's the whole point. I want the reader to feel like many of the young kids in inner cities feel right now. They never get to relax. You don't relax on your way to school. You don't relax in school. You certainly don't relax on the weekend. You don't, you really don't relax if you're walking down a road you don't know, or if you're in a different postcode. I feel like the teenagers of today never get to let their shoulders down. And I wanted that tension to be present in cuts both ways all the time, because I feel like it's a young person's lived reality. And I felt like the correct way to soften the blow of the trauma within that book was with a love story. And it was important that a love story was present because I think more often than not, some people think that love or kindness is not available to them or it's not part of their day-to-day -day life because of how they as individuals are positioned within the media. 
So, you know, it, there just had to be this balance. Also, on a completely cheesy takeaway, my husband and I fell in love over the Twilight series. Yes. So much so that my firstborn is called Esme, who is a character in Twilight. And so we knew the power of a love story when you're of a certain age and, you know, you've got your chosen group of friends or maybe even the person you do kind of fancy, how powerful it is to have that story to go back and forth with. Absolutely. Um, can I just say, I completely, um, the Twilight thing resonates with me. I read uh, the first Twilight when I just had my first child. See? So I was flooded with all the hormones anyway. <laughs> and I think I did go slightly crazy. You know, although I was very much in love with the father of my child, I was dreaming about Edward Cullen during that time, probably in a way that I shouldn't have done. But anyway, so yes, the power of a love story is, uh, yeah. I mean, I am really really enjoying it but it's it's really interesting to have that that background that you were looking for that attention because it certainly exists um on the page um can i ask you about your protagonist cynthia moves from london to the countryside you did that in later life i wondered if there was any element of autobiography in this novel as well absolutely i think not just from my point of view, but through the eyes of my firstborn. So Esme was born and raised in London and didn't leave London till she was like four going on five. And so she reacts to London in a completely different way to my son. My son, when we drive around London, thinks all red buses are fire engines because <laughs> where we live, <laughs> you barely get to see a bus or um he's developed a, a a huge fear of loud sounds and I do sometimes think gosh if you were living in London would that even be a thing because there's a loud sound around every corner and so I think the autobiographical elements are not just my own they're more my daughter's because my daughter is experiencing a life that I don't even quite understand she and this you know I wrote about this in my first book she goes to in my eyes quite posh private school she lives in an abundance of greenery she lives in a space where you see seven-year-olds walk into the park by themselves so I feel like so much of what Cynthia is interacting with is maybe how Esme's gonna view life a little bit later down the line so do you feel in that way that Cynthia is a good a good role model for young people to aspire to or to perhaps just um empathize with? Yeah, do you know what that's a good question. I think I think she's a great role model because I think she's real. I definitely think she's someone we can empathize with, especially from the positioning or the thinking of a victim's family who's left behind. I think we are so used to seeing headlines now where teens are left bleeding out in the road. And I mean, these headlines happen so quickly, right? We don't even get a picture anymore. You're lucky if you get a name. It's now just like 14-year-old boy stabbed to death in Wandsworth, 13-year-old girl stabbed. You know, it's not necessarily intimate details that make you paint a picture of a person. And I think to myself, if, if that's the snapshot we get of the deceased, imagine how invisible the family feels. These people have to continue living, you know, and I wanted there to be an element of empathy from and towards Cynthia that maybe readers in her position could understand. And you don't necessarily have to be the sister of a young boy who's been killed. You could be the cousin or you could be Jadelle, the best friend. You could be viewing this from very different positions. You could be the teacher. 
there are teachers who are torn apart by these senseless murders, you know? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's what I wanted Cynthia to represent. I wanted Cynthia to represent how life feels when you're haunted by a senseless loss. That's what I wanted her character to do. You do it really well. That comes across. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> On each episode of Raise Her Up, I talk to someone from within the GDSC family to get their view on the matter at hand. And in this episode, it's head of Sutton High School, Beth Dawson. So Beth, one of the themes that Candice broaches in her new young adult book, Cuts Both Ways, is that sense of alienation that you have as a teen. Specifically, the sense that young people and perhaps young women have of walking around not always feeling safe, but always not feeling quite right in their own skin. Is that something that you think that your young people at Sutton High experience? And, and what kind of things do you do to address that and to, to give them that sense of safety? I think that that idea of alienation and it's it's sometimes alienation from the world around you but other times it's alienation from yourself and you're feeling that you're not quite sure who you are you're not so confident in in what you are what you mean what you stand for so I think for us here at Sutton it's about how do we encourage the girls to know themselves better how do they like to express themselves how do they like to show their strengths and talents how do they like to be as a friend how do they like to be as a daughter and we do that in lots of different ways so it's really important to us that they have that sense of self because there's a lot of research that says that it's that self-expression that self-identity that gives them confidence and when they have the confidence, then confidence is the biggest indicator of success in exam results. So we build that very much from the time that they join us all the way down from nursery. It's a lot about self-expression. We've done a lot of work here in the past two years about uniform, about what is a school uniform. We need enough of a uniform to, to bond us together as a family and give us a collective Sutton High School family identity. But we also need enough freedom within that uniform to be able to self-express because when they can self-express that's when they can really start to think about who they are. Uh, we adopted the Halo Code, we were the first school in the UK to do that and that means that pupils with Afro-Caribbean hair or Black and Afro-Caribbean hair can uh, express themselves through their hair as well, that there's no limit on, on what their hair can be like. That self-expression through the way you physically are can really help you to explore who you are as a person as well, what your aims are in life, what your motivations are in life, what your ambitions are in life. We want them to be able to explore lots of new things because a small spark might be the one thing that then becomes part of who they are as an adult. You are a role model to many, many people out there. And, 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 and you really span ages, I think, as well. You know, you inspire people young and old. I've recently heard you on the Table Manners podcast with Jesse Ware, um, talking about your own childhood, seeing your grandmother going to work and your grandfather staying at home and doing the housework. And you are clearly a hugely successful woman. How did your start in life impact you? It made me desperate for another version of life. It was really hard, actually. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of space for love in my life. And in other books, I speak about the love I felt from my dad and my granddad and certain teachers, my God. But there was also a lot of friction and there was always this deep belief that I was born into the wrong space. But like from a really young age, I was like, I do not like it here. I feel as though I'm a really big plant 
put in a really tiny pot. And instead of people around me going, let's get you a bigger pot, the vibe was, let's trim you. Like you're the issue. Wow. You know? And so from a young age, I was very preoccupied with replanting myself, you know, for lack of a better word. I was like, where can I go where how big I am is not a problem? Because in my community at the time, it was always viewed as rude. You don't question adults. I came up in the late 80s, early 90s in South London with West Indian counterparts, me throwing a question in the air was just seen as me being rude or not uh, not answering to authority. And I think the the luckiest part of my life were those little slithers where my dad and my granddad would be like, ask all the questions. Do not take anything at face value. It's never going to annoy us. And I remember when the OJ Simpson trial was happening, I remember my granddad pulling me out of bed at like 1am in the morning. I think I was about 7, 8. This is on school nights, him pulling me out of bed and him sitting me down in the living room because obviously there's that time difference and him being like, you you have to watch history unfold. This is going to be a conversation for as long as you're going to be alive. And I want you in this room to see how the law works or how it doesn't work. And my granddad would turn to me and be like, what do you think? Do you think he's guilty? That was so powerful because at seven, eight, I was like, God, not only do I have an opinion, it's valued. And I'm sitting with adults watching a very adult thing. I'm not saying it's a choice I would have made, but I'm really grateful for that because again, it was that little, it was that little stroke of light in the darkness where I was like, right, you can replant yourself and not everyone's going to be supportive of that, but you've got enough support that you'll continue to grow wherever you go. I mean, that's really interesting, especially in the light of something that you you wrote in I'm Not Your Baby Mother. You say, as long as I can remember from what I could see, being a black woman has always meant you were just there to service and please others, whether it's your parents, your man, your children. So if you were getting a different message from the really influential men in your life about that, that must have had a, a, a massive impact on you as a young woman. Huge impact. I think it's the little confidence that made the difference. And it's why now maybe, no, it's definitely why I'm in the marriage that I am and I get to work in the way that I do because I I understand, oh God, of course, I more than understand. I've lived the inequality. I understand the hardships that await women and then the intersection of being a black woman. I've lived those experiences. But I also have men in my life who are like, that is so rubbish. You are the best thing since sliced bread. And we believe that so much. We will step back in our masculinity and allow you to take the floor because in this space, you get the job done better than we can. I think it's one thing for men to be like, oh, we support women, we're allies. Yeah, to the point of maybe cutting down your work hours so your other half can flourish. Like what what are you actually doing to support what you're saying? I go back to what I said, you know, a, a few minutes ago. Sometimes you have to sit something out. Sometimes allyship is engaging with material where you're an afterthought. Yes, yes. It's interesting. I had I had never put that in the perspective of men supporting a woman in their relationship. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Your uh, brilliant book, Sister Sister, sets out lessons that you wish that you'd been taught in in an easier way. You're a mother of a daughter and a son. What do you think is your most powerful motherhood lesson? What would be your your ultimate words of wisdom, do you think? Oh my gosh, my most powerful 
No pressure, Candice. <laughs> um, it, it's just deeply believing that I don't own them. I don't own them. And I think that makes the relationship run so much smoother. And it makes things that maybe others would say could be their or my children's failures cease to exist to me. Because the reality is with lack of ownership comes an idea of, well, you can't really displease me because I've got no expectations here. The expectation is actually all on me. I made the decision to bring you here. So I must love you. I must feed you. I must try and give you the best of me when and where I can. I'm human. I'm not perfect. So that's not going to be all the time. But on the flip side, because I made that choice, that means that I don't actually expect anything from you. The hope is that you are polite and you are kind and you help people who are in need and you have empathy. We can have those hopes, but I think expectation in parental children relationships, again, is where the tension comes in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so many parents end up frustrated because it's like, oh, they didn't go to Oxford. I'm so upset. But that that's an unfair expectation. For, towards a life that's not even your own. And more often than not, these expectations come from spaces where we feel like as adults, we didn't get the support we wanted to excel or go to Oxford or do this thing. And so the easiest way to tidy that all up is to then throw that on our kids and be like, right, you've got to get straight A's. You've got to pass this test first time. I'm just not here for it. And what I've noticed with that is it just makes my parental relationship a lot smoother. Because I'm just like, okay, like the other day, bless her heart, Esme swore at someone at school. You know, the backstory, I would have done more than swore, to be fair. When I heard the whole story, I was like, right, he's lucky he just got the F-bomb because it would have been fisticuffs <laughs> at dawn if it were me. Because there was no expectation... <laughs> she wasn't afraid to tell me the truth. I was able to say, listen, honey, you know, that's bad language. And whilst I like you to express yourself in that setting, you can't really do that. Like you can come home, close your door and let it fly because you're human, but you really shouldn't direct that language towards someone else. And again, it just proved that the lack of expectation meant that she felt more chill in being honest with me. So that lack of expectation continues to pay for itself. I now parent from a space where physical discipline is just not on my radar. And so many of my black friends and brown friends are working really hard to overturn some of that trauma and really identify physical discipline for what it is and what it was. And then not repeat that with our children. I don't own them. It's such a, it's so obvious, isn't it? But it's such an important <laughs> reminder that you, I mean, you know, these are yeah. independent little people that we have made, but that doesn't mean that we can say exactly what they have to do at all times. Exactly. And also I think it's good preparation for the later years when we're not going to be around all the time. And I want my kids to do the silly stuff because we all did silly stuff. We don't need to name it. But my thing is I want them to feel secure in telling me that silly stuff. So much drama and pain comes from secrecy. If you say to me, mum, I went out last night and I done A, B or C, that then puts me in a position of understanding what you may need in this moment. Instead of keeping it a secret, 
and then problems arising from that. Like we we always try and have dinner together and it's very much like, so what's the order of the day? What have you done? You know, get ahead of it at all times. And I think, again, that lack of ownership allows them to feel free and to tell you the things that maybe we hid from our parents because there was that sense of ownership. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't possibly tell them that because they did not expect that of me and now I'm going to disappoint them. Um, Candice, can I ask you a, a really random question to end on? Obviously, we've talked about your two of your books being autobiographical. And I was thinking recently about Dolly Alderton's um, Everything I Know About Love being televised. And I wonder if you can tell where I'm going with this now. <laughs> is there any chance? <laughs> is there any chance that we can see uh, one of your books come to fruition, come to our screens in this way. And, you know, another good reason perhaps to do it is I know that you're a big Sex and the Sissy fan and you know that Candice Bushnell did it. I will say there's a huge chance. There's more, There's yeah, there's a huge chance. There's more of a chance than not. Also, anyone who has followed my career would know that that's always been the dream. Whilst I appreciate the idea of being an influencer and being online, it really is a means to an end. And I think one of the end goals for me is being very Shonda Rhimes. Shonda Rhimes is one of my career goals. For those that don't know who Shonda Rhimes is, she is the brains behind Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder and Bridgerton. <laughs> like that's coming from one woman's brain. And I think the way that I write lends itself towards the big and the small screen. Well, I would agree. <laughs> Let's not beat around the bush. Let's just do it. Brilliant. Oh, Candice, this has been such a great chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I really hope that um, our paths will cross again before too long. Kathy, thank you. It's been amazing. Thank you. <laughs> And you can get all of Candice's books and listen to her own brilliant podcast, Pillow Talk, at CandiceBraithwaite.com. What an amazing conversation. Candice is so articulate and so funny and so warm. And I found it amazing how she could maintain that level of, of clarity when talking about so many different things and when talking about the real seriousness of the theme of her new novel and the well-being of young people, but then to kind of zip over to having to deal with the uh, monotony of motherhood sometimes, I could relate to that. Thank you for being with me on this first episode of Raise Her Up Season 2. I'm going to be speaking to some really incredible women over the next few months. So if you give this a follow, then you won't miss any of them. Speaking of which, in the next episode, I'm talking to a woman who is just so insightful when it comes to the power of saying no. It's award-winning consultant clinical psychologist, Dr. Nahara Kraus. If you're more self-aware, what you need then is the ability to be able to act on that self-awareness and to say this isn't right for me. And if this isn't right for me, then I need to be able to back that up by saying this isn't right for me. And that means no. I'll see you then. That's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise her up. <laughs>